Hello and welcome to episode 51 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria and your host. This week I am very fortunate to have Daniel Solis inside the role-playing studio. Uh, you may know Daniel as the designer of Happy Birthday Robot and Doe, Pilgrims of the Flying Temple. You can find out more about Daniel and what he's got going on at danielsolis.com. So hi Daniel, how's it going? Howdy, how are you doing? I'm doing just fine. It's a super, super cold day here, very, very windy and uh, lots of snow blowing around. There's my token small talk for you. So let's crack on. How long have you been a role player? Oh, gosh. I got my start, uh, I think, with, like a lot of people uh, when I was a kid. Um, I was uh, first exposed to, all, of all things, Alternity, the, the odd little sci-fi thing that TSR put out um, oh, yeah, sure. all those years ago. That was probably one of my first role-playing experiences. And since then, I've been... I've, been in it for for years right was it a case of a uh, a friend of, of your brother's or a brother or was it something that you yourself stumbled across quite by chance uh it was, it was some friends of mine in, in middle school um we both got we all got into D and just start playing whatever we could get our hands on right and so you just played like the red box to start with or did you play like advanced or basic or <laughs> i'm actually a little a little young for the red box <laughs> um it was uh it was Probably closer to when I was when I first started gaming, it was um, the hot stuff was vampire and mage and things and right. Uh, so so it got started with uh, with some late like late mid mid nineties D and D stuff and then and then kind of went on to uh, mage and vampire and all the white wolf stuff. Right. So you started off with D and D three point perhaps or three point five. Just like just before uh, 3.0, like uh, it was kind of it was like in that transitional period when when magic was just rising up and wizards had just bought the D and D property, so things right. were kind of in flux. Right, right. Uh, so like what was left of D and D was more of this odd cargo culture where right. people, like people who remembered how how they played in the 80s were were now like kind of teaching it to people in the 90s, even though things were kind of changing. And it, it was it was a Rich, heady time. Yes, yeah, it's a, yes, a heady brew, as you say. And a nice uh, kudos for the uh, cargo culture reference there. You should check out cargo culture if you don't know what uh, what the Daniels are talking about here. Um, so we're talking about 90, sort of 90 and then through. So you must have been, if you're starting out in 95, did you say? Uh, roughly around there, yeah. Okay, so that would have been like Wraith and Changeling sort of time. Did you, did you try any of those or...? Yeah, I was a big fan of Wraith um, and and Changeling too, uh, but for some reason it was just hard to find people who wanted to play it. Mm, yeah, uh, so I, I so hear what you're saying. Yes, absolutely. A lot of it was just like collecting the books and then and reading over them and fawning mm. over them, but mm. never finding finding people to play them with. That's right. Yeah. Did you get the uh, the Wraith book with the glow in the dark cover, or did you just miss out on that one? I missed out on that one. That, uh, I had the second edition. Right. Yeah, that uh, the the glow in the dark one is sitting just m- m- bare meters away from me. It's on the floor because my daughter likes to pull it out. She's got a thing for zombies and and scary <laughs> scary stuff at the moment. So that that book really tickles her fancy. She turns the light off and likes to uh, look at it. So you started off with um, Alternity and uh, you played some Dungeons and Dragons and and then what did you play? Oh, um, but and then then on the, into college um, we started playing a lot of GURPS. I, I well. I fell into a, a GURPS group, I, I guess I should say. Um, over one summer, we played a uh, time travel campaign with the GURPS system. And I don't know, I can't say much for the GURPS system um, on, on its own. It, it was it was fine. But um, that that group in particular and the uh, kind of the fun of that time travel story was what really re- reignited my interest in role-playing at the time. Right. And that led to... Uh, Getting back into more of the kind of sci-fi side of things with, with Aberrant, uh, the the um, kind of that was part of the Trinity sci-fi setting that yes. uh, White Wolf had put up. Yeah, 
Um, and then after that, gosh, uh, I, I, then I discovered the indie role playing game uh, community and all mm. the crazy things that they were doing. Um, that was the real eye opener for me uh, whenever right. I, I was a young a young gamer. Mm-hmm. Sure, and just one of the things that I talked about with with Sam Chup, and I'm interested to get a, a younger person's uh, perspective, as you so carefully pointed out that I'm in fact old compared to you, um, is that uh, is the importance of the or the relative at least importance to me of uh, of the shadow. I don't want to flog a dead horse here, but do you see any any um, sort of DNA from that shadow sort of mechanic um, showing through into subsequent games? Um, a, a little bit. Um, I can see some where the experimentation of it uh, led to some very interesting uh, play structures that kind of that decentralize the narrative uh, role that the GM plays mm. in most role playing games. Sure. Um, and and in that sense, uh, you see a lot of very interesting things going on with uh, even till today of GMless role playing games that uh, that nevertheless function very very well um, w- without that assumption of of having one uh, player at the table control the majority of things that are going on in the in the uh, in the in the fiction right uh, and in that sense yeah there uh, that that spirit of of kind of innovation uh is definitely present in today's games mm-hmm. so uh so gips and what and and then the the sort of story games is there any particular story game that uh, piqued your curiosity or did you just sort of find the forge and start reading there or <laughs> uh, it was honestly uh jared Sorensen's games that I, right. I liked i like to pull out pull out the shelf and kind of in, in a sense just just kind of uh introduced to my uh to my local gamers at the time right um and we played um a little bit of lacuna uh a lot of octane right um which which was tons of fun mm-hmm. uh, and that was octane in particular was what kind of uh sort of blew up my, blew up my brain a little bit as, as far as the the potential of um something that was beyond just a system that was built around a a binary success failure model but but rather sure. Um, shifting narrative control and doing all those fun things that are kind of they, they seem so quaint now, but sure. uh, at the time were just revolutionary. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's interesting the ebb and flow of uh, of gaming. You know, what's uh, you know everything old is new again, and you know, now that it's a bit passe, and you know, it's yeah, that's for such a uh, I guess that's the hobby that um, attracts a lot of people with a lot of opinions. And nobody's share, don't be scared to uh, to share one, particularly when they're safely on the other side of a uh, on the other side of a computer screen. So, it's uh, yes, it's interesting. I'll just leave it at that. Um, <laughs> my, one of my things is is be nice to other people and say, give them one chance to do something wrong before you tear their head off. But uh, hmm. but anyway, so what are you playing now? Right now, I haven't. You know, honestly, in the past um, five years, I haven't really played that many role playing games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, partly it's partly it's because I've uh, I've I, I've kind of shifted more into the board game side, um, right. and and even when I have done more fiction oriented uh, games, right. they've been far less of the far less of a, a traditional role playing game model with with players who own characters and a and a uh, a primary player who controls the setting in which those characters interact. Um, the the games that I've ended up designing, like Happy Birthday Robot and mm-hmm. Doe. Yes. Um, they've they've all been very uh, very focused on introducing new people to the to the ideas of um, using play structures to right. create stories. Right. 
Um, but but in doing so, uh, I've I've had to figure out ways to to kind of strip away some of the some of the um, the, the central assumptions of what a role playing game has to have. Yes. And in doing so, I've I've I hope I've made things that are that are probably rightly considered rightly called storytelling games more yes. so than even some of the things some of the systems that may have been called story games or, or storytelling games at the time. Sure. Yeah, this but, idea of introducing people to uh, to role playing um, is something that Sam Chupp and I talked about on the on the previous episode. You know, getting kids involved and and so forth. And um, the characters uh, drawn by James Stowe was one of the things that we uh, that we talked about. And I understand you're doing something with uh, James Stowe at the moment. Yeah, uh, he and I have actually worked on a couple different things together. Uh, he illustrated a role, a, a, I guess, a storytelling game that uh, that I was working on a couple years ago, and. Uh, and since then, we've kind of kept in touch. And uh, he, um, in that time, has developed a, a series of, uh, of D&D illustrations that he did for his kids and developed that into a uh, webcomic that's, that's become very popular. And he's expanding that into a role-playing game. Right. Uh, and I was aware of this project um, at, uh, when a friend of mine, uh, Lindsay Peters, and I uh, started working on a card game. And uh, we we both have very similar mindset as, as far as introducing uh, younger and newer players to the kind of the, the tropes of gaming right. uh, without, without having to introduce the whole kit and caboodle, um, right. all of us, you know? Right. Um, so when we were working on this card game, it was kind of, it was kind of this natural fit where uh, the themes of it were basically that you're, uh, that you're the sidekicks of adventurers right. uh, and and you're going on these quests to, uh, to on, under their tutelage. Right. And uh, it's a very simple, very simple card game, um, kind of a push your luck thing. But it, it lent itself very, very well. The themes of it lent itself very well to the psychic quests property. So we contacted James. He was down with it, and he was eager to find another avenue to show off his illustrations. Right. Um, so uh, thankfully, we're all all three of us were in, were kind of simpatico, and uh, we've been in development for the uh, psychic quests card game for the past uh, six months now. Um, it's right. been in, in, internal testing. Right. And pretty soon it'll be ready for a public beta. Pretty soon, like we expect it within 2013 or the first quarter or second quarter of 2013? It'll, it'll definitely be um, out in public beta, by, um, by I think, second quarter of this year. Um, so so there'll, there'll be announcements on that. Um, right now, normally my, my, my kind of model of game development has been very, very public. Uh, right. To put out early prototypes very, um, very quickly. Um, Happy Birthday Robot actually began as a Google Doc that I just put out um, with a very, very simple introduction to the system. Hmm. Uh, and that got so much buzz that within about a month or two, I decided to go ahead and, and hire, hire an artist and go to Kickstarter. And it was actually one of the first, one of the first storytelling or, or game projects uh, to go on Kickstarter, which was kind of fun and, and, and sort of set a precedent for, for a lot of things to come. Hmm. Uh, but the, um, but, but that, that aside, I've normally been so public about my game development, but this in this case we're being a little bit more uh, cagey, uh, wow. mainly because it's so much of the game is built around James's illustrations, and we want to make sure that whenever we do a first public release of this thing for uh, for even for beta testing purposes, that it have some of that flavor in there. So we wanted to wait for James to have sketches ready, right. uh, which he does now, and uh, now we're ready to proceed to actually making prototypes for uh, for print and play, right. and. Uh, and now, now we're we're talking about this a little bit more uh, publicly, right? Such as here on Penny Red, you heard it yep. here. Whatever, whatever number this is. I mean, one of the things that you mentioned there was was play testing, and I was reading uh, one of your blog articles regarding play testing, and I, 
you put into words some of the things that I've been thinking about um, with regards to it, and that's specifically uh, the effect that the designer of the game has on the the playtest. Now, I don't think that I have any of the same problems, quote-unquote, um, that you have in terms of recognition, but I often wonder you know, how much of an effect my you know, my patter that goes along with, with running my game at convention and so forth has on the impressions of the people. Now, obviously, other people have, have run it, and I've got feedback along those lines, but as somebody doing a playtest, have you discovered any ways to to get around that or things you've found to be, uh, to be useful? Well, I think the, the trick is that um, the data that you get from a, from a playtest where you're present is simply just different kind of data than the data you'll get from a blind playtest. Um, so if you go into a playtest where you're present looking for the same kind of data that you're going to get from a, from a blind playtest, you may be disappointed or you may find just uh, just data that's, that's inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Um, so the things that you kind of have to look at, or at least rather the things you have to ignore, first off, are um, if there are rules questions that are, that are coming up, you have to note those. Mm. Uh, also acknowledge how you're answering them. Uh, and if the way you're answering them is helpful, then that could be a thing that you work into the rules text itself. It yes. would be examples or diagrams, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's, it's, some, it's one of those things where you just have to watch out for your own behaviors and your own, and your own play patterns, uh, which is hard to do, uh, kind of stepping outside of yourself a little bit um, to, to really see how you approach a game and how, how you present a game compared to how someone just reading the text or just seeing a diagram uh, may present it based on their own interpretation and their yeah. own assumptions. Yes. Um, that's part of the reason why I haven't been focused on uh, role-playing games too much lately is because so much of uh, you have, a lot of times you're writing a very, very large document um, and it, when it hit, finally hits the table, it's still filtered through the uh, the sort of local folk culture uh, that it develops within any individual game group, they they mm. all have kind of in jokes and their own their own kind of um, preconceptions about how to play and, and and how to play things the way they enjoy them, which are totally fine. Right. Um, but role playing games in particular seem more malleable. Uh, and and since I don't know five years since five years ago or so, I focus I've tended to focus more on um, what maybe what may seem like more draconian. Uh, game rules and game systems where, where there are more explicit uh, turn-based structures or more explicit guidelines for what you're supposed to do in a, in a given set of time um, or exploring pacing mechanics where you're only allowed to, to play until a certain point. Yes. Uh, and kind of exploring those structures a little bit and just seeing what happens whenever you, you do try to take this thing that's normally a very nebulous play experience and, and try to add a little bit more infrastructure to it and see what happens there. Right. Yeah, that, the the game that I'm uh, currently working on, I'm, I'm doing that now, and I'm I'm seeing, you know, and trying to make it a relatively, or at least a comparatively brief document. You know, the number of assumptions that you make, just even about role playing in general, um, is is quite is quite a lot. When I when I put it together to start with, I part of my brief that I gave to myself was I wanted to write a game which somebody who'd never played before could pick up, rather than a game where there are a whole bunch of uh, sort of 
preconceptions about you know what what role playing should be so so writing the shorter game that I'm, I'm working on right now and having to leave a lot of that stuff out makes me a little anxious but um, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, in, in a lot of ways it's quite freeing you know you don't have to worry about misinterpretation of thumbs some things but uh, obviously there's plenty still plenty of room for misinterpretation sometimes happy misinterpretation but uh, anyway moving along what's your favorite book or supplement other than something that you've written um and, and it can be you know something that you just like to go back and look at or something that, that you still maybe even use today? Uh, one of the things that, uh, that got me into um, the game, the business side of, the, of uh, games uh, was layout and, uh, and graphic design. And um, probably one of the more influential books that, that, that kind of influenced me was the uh, Nobilis Second Edition. Right. Um, it's that big honking white coffee table book yes. with huge... Uh, huge white space on the on the margins and mm. just such luxurious typography and and even like a, a little like a red silk bookmark that was sewn into the binding and mm. um, then spot varnish on the cover just all basically all the all the 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 print production and uh, typographic layout and and uh, graphic design choices that were made there um, I, I picked up that book when I was still in, uh, in art school. And so right. I was really primed to absorb every single little thing in that book. Right. Um, never got, again, you know, hard to find players for it, but, yes. uh, the way that, the way that book looked, um, and the way it felt and, and how hefty it was, mm. uh, it, it didn't seem like it should be on a game table where it, where you run the risk of smudging it with Cheeto fingers and all that. Yes, you know? yeah, yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, it's a work of art in itself. You know, just the just the the tome. I, I never I never uh, was in a position to own a copy of that myself. But the idea of the book itself being being art, quite apart from from what's inside it, is is inspiring. A lot of the impact of a of a book, you know, there's the subtle things. You know, like you say, the design cues that that go into a book. Um, that make an impression on the on the reader is something that I don't well that is that I haven't spoken about before. So from a um, from a designer standpoint, what sort of things have you had input into? Oh um, well, if you, I, I am proud to say that if you go to pretty much any any game store, any uh, hobby game store um, around the country, um, if you look in the role playing game section, you'll probably find at least one or two covers that I've designed. Right. So uh, that's that's mainly because I've I've worked with a lot of a lot of role playing you know, game companies, mm-hmm. um, um, mostly small. Um, nothing I've never done anything for for uh, Watts or anything, but um, for the most part, I've uh, I've done a lot of work for Jared Sorensen, who uh, whose games I, I I was playing back in mm-hmm. college. Right. I ended up playing out stuff for him. Um, did stuff for John Wick, who uh, designed. I, I did the uh, Houses of the Blooded role playing game uh, layout. Um, let's see. I'm, I'm looking at my game. I'm looking at my game shelf now because I have laid out so many of these things. Um, a lot of the stuff for Greg Stolze, uh, mm-hmm. who did Rain. Um, right. And uh, oh, speaking of which, his Unknown Armies that was a huge influence on me as far as the design, the, um, like mechanics design goes. Sure. Loved. I loved that system. Um, bu- 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 I am did some more recently uh designed the uh the cover and the interior for shelter in place the zombie larp uh designed by jared blackwell okay um geez uh quite a few things here uh lacuna for uh for jared Sorensen. uh and right now i am going to be doing some more layout for um for the delta for uh 
uh, a little bit for Delta Green next year is the plan, but but for now I'm I'm still working with Shane Ivey at, um, and his company uh, to work on a new role playing game, which I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about yet. Okay. Uh, more recently, I've been doing more layout for the Marvel role playing game supplements for um, uh, with Cam Banks and Margaret Weiss Productions, right. uh, doing doing stuff on the supplements there along with the Leverage uh, role playing game supplements. And again, and and actually, I'm going to be working on another property for them, which again, I'm not entirely sure if I'm allowed to talk about yet. But it's a fairly big license that will be very recognizable to a lot of people, and right. I'm really excited to talk about it. But I can't say anything more. <laughs> okay, well, you can follow you follow Daniel uh, on on G Plus as well, and you can uh, maybe as soon as he's able to say something, you can catch up uh, catch up with it there. But um, now, from the standpoint of uh, being, um, I'm an old man now, not. Not like literally old, but an old man in terms of uh, of having designed a lot of this stuff for role playing game covers and so forth. What um, advice or or any tips do you have for other people that might want to come along and uh, and also do layout or do any work for um, role playing books? Um, well, I mean, the first thing is you got you got to do. Um, a lot of people kind of consider themselves consider themselves designers, uh, sort of self taught, which is entirely possible. You don't have to go to art school for, uh, to to do design, but it helps. Mm. Um, it, it isn't the school that helps, but it's it's the the discipline of having to do the rigorous exercises and and visual training yes. uh, that it takes to to know how to lay out a, a simple page of copy. Sure. Um, with no with so one of one of my first jobs was um, actually laying out novels and and uh, uh, just academic books right. um, that were. Pure dry, really, mm. really dry stuff. Autobiographies, things like that, and it was for a university press. So, you know, any images that were there were kind of crammed into the middle, and then everything else was just pure type. And right. that was, and I had produced a lot of those books, and that was right. probably the best training that I had for how to just lay out a page of copy before right. you know you have the luxury of having any other graphics or any of these tricks of the trade that that you can do now to kind of mask um, any any uh, lack of training that you may have mm-hmm. uh, i've been guilty of i've, I've you know i've taken shortcuts uh, in the past but um having the the fundamentals down is really handy and and there's lots of books that you can read on that um probably the one of the best places to start is this book called the uh the non-design or the design book for non-designers i think i think it's the title yes uh, I have to double double check yep, on that's that right. one. No, that, that's correct and robin williams who's a yes. lady yes. not the actor right <laughs> <laughs> Williams, um, but that's a good place to start. Um, that'll get you the fundamentals of of, uh, of just what, how to set type and how to make type readable, mm. uh, and what are the basic rules are for that before you ever get into the technicals of how to actually set up any like styles in InDesign or things like that. Like yes. it's it's easy to kind of fall in the trap of, of looking up uh, InDesign tutorials and thinking that's how you're learning design, yes, uh, or, or Photoshop tutorials and thinking that's how you how you do design. Yes. Um, Really, those are just like those are those are advanced steps. Really, the the fundamentals are are, are what's important, um, and even more fundamental than that is um, uh, really understanding the the purpose of a cover. And, and I, I've gone on at length about this in the past. I feel like so if anyone's heard me inter- heard me talk about this before, they probably you know, know they can probably mouth what I'm going to say next. But um, one thing I always like to say um, whenever I'm talking to students or young designers is that a cover is a promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, that when you see a cover of a book, you should be able to judge the book by its cover. Yes. Um, if, if you can't, then the cover's not really doing its job. Yeah. Uh, 
So when you're designing the cover and you're looking at the cover, you got to think about what is it that this cover is promising? What kind of experience is the game uh, supposed to have? And is the cover really communicating that? Yes. Uh, so I've, I've lectured on this and, and talked to students and stuff. And um, I, I think even my uh, a Gen Con lecture I did uh, way back ages ago uh, is up too. But um, but that, that's really the, the 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 heart of it is uh, figuring figuring out how to best communicate the things that you're trying to communicate about whatever it is you're laying out. Yeah, and I know enough about layout to know that I don't know enough about layout to actually be doing it myself. Unfortunately, there's that uh, that gap between being a being an independent publisher and being a successful independent publisher, which allows you to hire somebody who does know enough about layout to be doing to be doing layout. But um, but yes, I can I can certainly endorse the. Um, the non-designer's design book. Um, I just recently uh, read it and discovered in the process of reading it that I, I had actually read it previously, um, or at least I'd read the typography part and the, the, the basic layout. So if you can um, get a hold of it, get the, the newer version of it because it's actually got the typography and the um, and the sort of basic design basics in one in one volume. So that might be something worth uh, looking into. And just one further question about layout before we before we move along. Um, if you were somebody who was doing layout and you were trying to find somebody who's prepared to pay you to do layout, is there any sort of place where where role playing book producers go to to try and find those sort of people? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a very tight knit community, um, and and I got my start um, when I got to uh, when I got to know one one role playing game designer, Greg Stolze. He really gave gave me my start, and then from from there. Um, he put me in touch with a few other designers that he knew, um, and that's really how I got my start. Just working on very small things here and there, and 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 thankfully he was patient enough to deal with a very young designer who didn't really know that much about design at the time, right? Because uh, I was still just getting started in college at, whenever I first started working with him. But then, um, but going on from there, it you know it's it's very much a networked culture. So if you if you can design. Uh, if you can do layout, um, you, you really have to put up examples of that um, first and put that up online. And, right. and where to go to show that off um, are places probably like RPGNet uh, mm-hmm. would be a good place to start. Seek out places where there are uh, playing game designers who, are, who for whatever reason, uh, they, they can't do the layout themselves and offer to help them. Yes. And once you've made those connections, um, even if they're not a published designer, even if they're not a big company, it's a place to start and it's a place to practice while you, while you really get, get a hold of your own craft. Mm-hmm. And then once you've established that, then you really, your skills speak for themselves. Um, yes. and, uh, and then you can, um, if you go to a convention, introduce yourself to designers, introduce yourself to people who work in the industry, uh, have a portfolio ready online and in print so that you can, uh, you can show it off to people, uh, whenever you need to you know, present yourself well, um, be cordial and friendly. You know, basic. You know, it's the basic job interview stuff. Yeah, but the, the stuff that twenty years ago you'd never actually have to tell somebody, but now it seems like it's necessary to point out to people that you know, wearing something that looks like you care about your own image is going to sort of reflect on what you might think of somebody else's uh, work, right? Yeah, even if the. I mean, uh, not to be fair, I do often work for a guy that has a purple mohawk. Uh, that's Fred Hicks at Evil Hat. Sure. Sure. Uh, but even then, even then, um, it's, you know, put on a, whenever you can put on a professional appearance uh, or, or just a professional demeanor is, yes. is really probably the more important thing in our culture. Hmm. Uh, we, we have a lot of uh, avant-garde people, a lot, of, a lot of really creative people who, who will, you know, they'll ignore how you look. But if you can turn in work on time, 
um, and at a, at a you know reasonable rate and a reasonable pace, um, mm -hmm. and you just meet your deadlines and you're reliable, that is going to do wonders for your career. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if you're not reliable or if you're, uh, you know, I, I think there's like a three-way Venn diagram of like, if you're reliable and if you're good and if you're something else, I can't remember the actual diagram, so that's probably a bad example. But, no, no, you've, you've got, uh, I think that's a, a standard one for, for trade in general, which is... Um, Time, uh, money, and and quality. Right, you can have two of the three. You can't right, have, right. You can't have all three. Cheap. And but uh, but yeah, it, it, you know, translating that to your own skill set is, um, if you know, even if you're inexperienced, as long as as long as you're reliable and yes. you're professional, that that can still get you hired. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I can I'll, I'll be the first to say I'm not the best designer in the business, um, but I'm I'm pretty reliable. I think. Uh, at least I'd like to be. I'd say the number of covers and layout pieces of work you've done, Daniel, says that not only are you reliable, but you're also very good. <laughs> Come on, pat yourself on the back. We don't have all have to be uh, so self-effacing here. All right, so let's get on with the role playing question. That's all the uh, the layout, the wannabe layout people get for from from Daniel today. At least that's all I'm going to allow him to talk about. So if you could role play with four people, living or dead, who would it be and why? Four people. Yes, and you can't choose somebody from your family or somebody you knew that's deceased and you want to see them again, and you can't choose a, uh, a game designer, and you can't also choose somebody that you uh, work for just to make things a little bit easier on you. Okay, well, um, I've just recently been been, uh, been kind of hooked on this world history series on YouTube, so I've been introduced to, uh, it's a, a Crash Course World History series. Right. Really, really great stuff. Uh, Ten-minute episodes of um, each focusing on one little subject of world history, starting from the dawn of civilization onward. Mm -hmm. um, really great stuff. Really interesting characters that 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 you don't really often hear about. And one of those, uh, one, a couple of those interesting uh, characters um, were the uh, I can't I can never pronounce his name right. I think it's it, it looks like uh, Zheng He, but okay. I think it's actually pronounced like Cheng Ho. <laughs> <laughs> or Chen ha, something, something like that. Anyway, dude's crazy awesome. Um, uh, was captured um, by Mongols as a, or he was a Mongol that was captured and made into a eunuch and brought to the uh, Chinese court right. Uh, right. during like the 1100s, 1300s, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, eventually rose up the ranks in, in the navy, um, becoming the admiral of the largest fleet of treasure ships that the Indian Ocean Trade Network had ever seen. And according to eyewitnesses, uh, these ships were like seven masts long, which, which, if accurate, those would have been the largest ships ever constructed until the Industrial Revolution, like hundreds of years later. Right. Uh, and uh, he and 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 not on top of that, these ships were huge, but the fleet was huge. Mm. Uh, and they basically set off from China all the way down to the Swahili coast, um, establishing trade uh, trade networks um, between uh, dynastic China. And uh, as far as Indonesia and India and up into the Middle East, and you know, it's it's rare to hear stories of adventurers going off in huge ships with huge armadas and not going for war. This is all. This was all to establish peaceful trade, right. uh, or ivory and things, and and not to establish footholds for an empire. Right, peaceful, um, but not for the elephants. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> They, they did bring back uh, giraffes and stuff, which was just kind of funny. So I, I imagine those giraffes were very confused. Um, but, <laughs> yes, <laughs> but those. I mean, uh, that, that's just one. Um, I, I would have. I would have loved to live in that. Live in that time and just just kind of 
uh, a period of time during in the Indian Ocean Trade Network where it was it was centuries before European influence. So this mm-hmm. is all from from Africa all the way to China and and according to some records, possibly down into Australia. Right. Um, that just interesting things were happening, and and uh, and it was aside from some pirates, it wasn't governed by any one empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, those, those those trade networks were just kind of this free flowing free for all, and and all of it was kind of guided by market forces. And yes. I don't know, I'm kind of geeking out about it, but it's, it was it sounds like such an exciting time <laughs> for sure. Okay, so you're going to have that chap, Zheng Ji or Zheng Ting Ho, or, or what? The, for, I apologise if any of his ancestors are listening and you're you're offended by my uh, inability to pronounce his name, but uh, I've not even seen it written down. So blame Daniel Solis. Um, so who are that's you got three more to go, or do you want to have him and three other of his uh, of his shipmates? All right, all right. Uh, uh, going very quickly through it, um, Ibn Battuta uh, okay. was an Islamic historian and scholar that uh, that um, uh, went uh, went out as a diplomat to a bunch of different countries uh, as far as far north as Germany, um, and he uh, he provides uh, some of the earliest accounts of what Vikings were like. Does um, not have kind things to say. <laughs> <laughs> but so that, that's an interesting dude um oh gosh uh there was uh there were a couple uh I, i'm very interested in the incan empire um that's a, a part of my my family history go, um, goes back there and i've kind of uh had a had a cursory um uh, curiosity about it ever, uh, ever since i learned that and um so i'm kind of curious about there i don't know any particular person that i'd want to be but i you know, kind of curious to see. You know who I want to be? I want to be a Chasky. Um, one of the uh, the Chaskis were the um, the uh, the del- the kind of the I kind of think of them as like Incan parkour runners. Right. Sure. Um, the uh, they were the ones that that were the uh, the actual postal delivery service. Uh, right. They, they were the, uh, the Pony Express. They would go on. They would run on foot along bridges and highways across the the Andean mountains, uh, right. delivering packages. You know, within short segments and they could get from one end of uh, South America all the way to the other within a couple of days um, to deliver a package. Right. Love that stuff. That was, that's really cool. Very speedy. Okay. That's three dudes Four, fourth or oh. maybe a girl. Uh, four. Uh, you know, who, who's pretty awesome. Uh, Sally ride. Okay. Uh, I would want to go to space and mm-hmm. uh, Sally ride was cool. I, I, I kind of, I'm kind of a big fan of Sally ride. <laughs> all right. Sure. So what are you guys going to play? Oh gosh, what are we gonna play? Uh, I think we would play. Uh, I'd be curious to play Happy Birthday Robot. Actually, <laughs> there you go. Excellent, excellent. Sounds like a, a fun time. Now, do you think they're going to have trouble um, understanding? Um, how do, like you think you'll be able to uh, get them into the, the mood fast enough? Yeah, that's one of the the, the things that I like about. Um, I, not to toot my own horn or anything, but oh come on, toot your own horn. I'm setting you up here. I'm setting you up to talk about Happy Birthday Robot, and you're now you're worried about tuning your own home. Come on. Well, yes, I mean, I did design it essentially as as a way to um, introduce the the basic. Um, basically, I went I came from the the central assumption that the heart of role playing uh, games is the act of using randomized inputs to create a story through emergent play, mm. and, um, and it's not, it sounds so dry and academic, but but essentially all all I meant was that. Um, I I have dice. Okay, I'm, I'm having dice. They're they're odd dice. They're they're kind of unusual, but they're dice nonetheless. Um, and you use those dice to influence how uh, how you tell a story together with a bunch of other people. Right. Uh, the the things that you won't find in Happy Birthday Robot are uh, GMs. 
Mm -hmm. uh, you won't find character ownership. Uh, so there's no character creation. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone is telling a story about robot on robot's birthday. Uh, and right. it's very, very short game. Um, it, uh, the way the, the system uh, is set up, it the game only lasts about uh, half an hour to 45 minutes. Right. But once you're done with it, you actually have this artifact of play that you've all, that you've all created together is this, uh, this uh, story. Uh, and just to briefly overview how Happy Birthday Robot works. Um, so if you imagine playing this with fudge dice, uh, so you roll four dice, um, and if any of them turn out to be uh, minuses, uh, those go to the player on your uh, left, uh, if any of them turn out to be pluses, you uh, hand those to the player on your right, and you keep any blanks. And right. you keep on rolling more dice, um, and as, and you keep on doing this until either the player on your left or your player on your right has four dice of their own. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the dice that you have remaining in front of you are the number of words you can say in a sentence. Right. Uh, and it starts off with, happy birthday, robot. And so that's the beginning of a sentence. The player on your right... Um, they have the pluses. They can say as many words as they like, um, equal to the number of dice that they have in front of them. Right. Um, and their free word is and. So you can say blah, blah, blah. They say and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. The player to your left who has the minuses, they're the, they introduce the complication. Uh, and so they end the sentence with but blah, blah, blah. And the number of words they can say is based on the number of words that they have, the number of dice that they have. Right. Um, and as you as you start saying words, you start earning coins, and then when one player earns ten coins total, uh, then that's when the story ends, and you do a little denouement, and the whole thing lasts about half an hour. And at the end of it, you have this kind of awkwardly constructed but really hilarious um, Mad Libs sort of sort of story that just right. sounds silly. Yes. Um, but it's it's always fun. It, it's it's a big laugh, and uh, people and people really dig it. I'm I'm really quite pleased. It's been play, my my proudest achievement. Oh, this whole thing, um, it's, uh, Happy Birthday Robot's been out for about two years now. Right. Uh, is the stories that I hear from schools and classrooms where they play this um, in teams. Right. Uh, it's just, it's always fun to see what kids put together for, for their stories. Yes. And it's, it's rare that you're, you're able to find any kind of, uh, e even role-playing games that are, that are designed for children, it's hard to fit a role-playing game into a classroom setting because of the time and all that. Yes. Absolutely, and well played, you. I've not actually used that with uh, with any of my students, but um, but thinking about it from that perspective, I think um, perhaps my wife, who teaches younger kids, might perhaps be more uh, might be able to make some use of that. So I shall suggest it to her and force her to do it, so that she can tell me a story about it, perhaps even on this show. So hell exists, and you are sent there condemned to play a certain style of game for eternity. What would it be, and why? And this doesn't mean you know you want to slam, say for example, Victoria, um, but uh, you want sort of like a, a style of, of game that just doesn't doesn't suit you like certain things happen like it's always fighting or it's always talking or it's you know something like that oh gosh um i'm not into i guess i'm not so much into violent themes right so i i guess it would be any game that that is constant violence uh that yeah uh, any, any kind of like gory stuff i'm not so much into right okay so you're are you not a fan of uh, quentin tarantino films <laughs> you know i I, you know, honestly, I'll, I'll watch. Uh, I'll watch a thing that you know Tarantino does. It's odd. Another podcaster just uh, just compared me to Tarantino, which is kind of the surprise to me. <laughs> but uh, which, which, it was an odd comparison. But anyway, the um, 
the uh no i'll watch you know i'll watch a i'll watch a, a hong kong action flick or or a wuxia movie or something like that mm-hmm. and occasionally i'll even play uh something that um that has you know i'll play risk legacy i mean, played risk legacy it's really cool i, I haven't no I, I to my for my sins i've not actually even played risk i think stratego was as close as i got to uh to that type of uh, type of game uh, Risk Legacy is cool. It, it adds role-playing game elements to, to the board game. It's really cool. Anyway, uh, violent themes are things that I, though, though I'll consume them sometimes, um, it's, it's rare and often, uh, and, and I've explicitly made a, a design goal to not design games that have violent themes in them. Right. Um, and and that's that's been something that's informed a lot of my decisions as, as far as what I will design and uh, what I'll publish Right, and does that include your uh, layout um, as well? Uh, it, um, you know, I'm, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I'm not that. Because <laughs> <that laughs> I'm not trying to put you in a corner here, but I was wondering because I, I was really getting at your your, your central thesis on um, on covers, which is you know, like you've got to um, the, you know the book is, is selling the game, and the book must represent what can happen in the game. So I was wondering how you reconciled those those two but not just from a um trying to make a difficult question for you but also from a you know a different ways to approach design to to satisfy yourself and to satisfy your customer yeah i am picky about about the projects that, that i that i work on um a lot of the times the uh, even even a game like um uh, shelter in place uh the I and mean, it's a zombie larp um you actually it's a, it's a live action uh, system and and you play with 20 some people and about half of half to two thirds of them are zombies and, uh, and you know, it's inherently a violent theme, but Mm. uh, the cover of it is laid out uh, such that it's, um, it's more about the shelter than the zombies. It's more about the barricades and the, and the defense than than about the gore so much. Um, So that front cover looks more like it's, it's bright orange hazard orange, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and has some, and the, and the front cover of it just, just from the nose up, you see someone who's wearing a, um, a surgical mask. Um, and, uh, and that basically what I, what I was trying to do there was, uh, try to, try to put on the cover, the protagonists of that story, um, mm-hmm. or ally that the protagonist may have in that story right. rather than specific, explicitly showing someone being torn apart by gore and all that, you know? <laughs> which is, you know, that 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 could have been a direction too. It's just not one that um, that I chose to take. Sure. So, who's your favorite villain, and why? Oh man, hard questions. Um, <laughs> favorite villain. Um, I actually um I actually like Galactus. Okay. Um, it's I'm not sure what that says about me though. <laughs> Tell us about Galactus first for those who don't know who he is. Uh, Galactus is a um, oh gosh, I'm, I'm sure your audience knows Galactus, but but in in the uh, Marvel comics, Galactus is this cosmic being that um, that is initially introduced as a devourer of worlds, uh, goes around through space looking uh, looking for plants to eat, um, inhabited or not. Um, just, Galactus is just is hungry and always eats worlds. Mm. In uh, as time has passed, uh, Galactus has been more kind of established and and. Uh, expanded upon to be more of this odd uh, force of nature that that is not without sympathy, but is still very alien and mm-hmm. and distant from the affairs of mortal humans. Right, and that is sort of like a cool idea to me. Uh, right. That uh, just I, I like the idea of slightly personified forces of nature, but but still very alien. 
Right. Okay. So, would you say that the Joker was a uh, was a force of nature? It depends on the. It depends on who, who's writing the Joker. Um, okay. Let's let's talk about Joker from the the film there. Oh, uh, the most Heath recent. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean that 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 is very much a, a sense where like he, uh, you could sense that with without an identity, without a real name, without any kind of uh, any kind of backstory, uh, and in fact having multiple backstories. Um, that was a case where you have someone who uh, who is sort of the antithesis of the protagonist, the, uh, a very quite literal antagonist, mm. uh, be, because uh, he's essentially the polar opposite. Whereas, whereas the protagonist has ties to the city, ties to uh, to family, uh, surrogate or not, ties to people who uh, who is trying to defend. The antagonist has none of that, and right. and actively seeks out to to point out the fallacies of of even assuming that there are those connections. Mm-hmm. And it's an inter- you know, it's interesting uh, exploration of character there, uh, but you know that, then it kind of gets into film theory a little bit. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, so I'm not averse to film theory, but we've had lots of layout theory. So let's proceed. Who's your favorite hero? Ooh, uh, favorite hero. I really like Doctor Who. Yeah, and why is that? Um, depend again you know over the years characters change and 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 different different uh creators have, have different influence over over them but but on the whole um doctor who is a very romantic uh, notion of of ad- adventure and exploration and curiosity taken taken to uh, a sort of near manic uh level but um but still having the a sense of optimism uh, yes. behind it. Yes. Um, Possibly more so, possibly more so than, than Star Trek, even, which is often, often cited as being the, the primary utopian sci-fi setting. Hmm. Doctor Who has that sense of uh, romantic exploration and and uh, like sincerity, almost that uh, that I really like. Right. So, who's your doctor? My doctor. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I may be showing my age, but I really like Doctor. I, I really like David Tennant. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know that it's going to be sacrilege to any Tom Baker fans, but uh. you're talking to a Tom Baker fan right now. I'd like to point. Out. <laughs> no, I don't. I think that Dave, I think David Tennant is a, is, a, is a great doctor. I I think I like I like all of the doctors for uh, for different reasons, but I think that they had different tools to work with as well. Um, oh, yeah. Whereas most of the modern doctors had reasonably good special effects going along with what it was they were doing. Now, they don't get, don't get a chance to, to see those, but the sort of t- stories they were able to tell and the types of villains they were able to put up against them and the, you know, the actual amount of fear that you could garner from your <laughs> audience, you know, like as, as varying. Like I remember the Cybermen and thinking, you know, like I had gl- cricket gloves exactly like those that, that that Cyberman's wearing, you know, which sort of breaks the fourth wall a little bit, I suppose. But, but yeah, it's... Um, I think the the creepiest thing about Doctor Who um, is the music. There's no, oh yeah. There's there's no two two ways about it. And, and aside from that, you know, the stories are. I enjoy the the stories. My favorite uh, episode. And I talked with uh, Satine Phoenix about this episode, well, the second time time we talked. But um, the the episode, the Five Doctors. Have you ever have you gone back and watched some of the old? Mm-hmm. Doctor yeah. Who's yeah, and, and the, the Five Doctors. I love the idea of crossovers. That's my. It's my my favorite thing in in films, not not just for the sake of it, but when it seems appropriate. And having the five doctors in that that episode was my favorite. But that sort of solidified my idea about about Tom Baker as being um, as being a favorite. And is it because my 
recent Doctor Who um, lore is not uh, as good as my old Doctor Who lore. Um, is it David Tennant that um, doesn't want to be involved in a more than one, you know, like a modern day you know, five Doctors? From what uh, from what I've heard, it's Chris. It's Chris. Oh, Rackles. Christopher Rickleson. Sorry, yes, Christopher Rickleson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wrong, wrong guy altogether. Yeah. So I think there's there might be some mileage in that. The the rumor is that they they've convinced him to do it. Um, oh, that sounds excellent. No, I'm I'm see I'm skeptical though. I, I I'm not I'm not getting my hopes up. But you know who I'd really like to see get another uh, another chance. I'd like to see Paul, uh, Paul McGann. But what is it about his portrayal that you uh, that you enjoyed, or do you feel like you just didn't get enough of a run at it? Well, I mean, he was the first one that I... Well, he was actually the first Doctor that I was introduced to. Um, right. I, I, I didn't see any of the... Um, in, in the States, um, they had Doctor Who episodes on PBS, but I could never get the reception on my t- on my little rabbit ears TV. Right. Um, so he was the first Doctor that I had ever seen, and that TV movie, for all you know, for all its flaws, um, was my first exposure to the whole mythos. And uh, and it was, it was it was great. It was a lot of fun, and I, was, and I kind of regretted not seeing a little more of that. Um, mm. And to catch up on the big Finnish audio adventures that he started. Right. Uh, so uh, just to fill in a little bit of sense of what his doctor was like, because uh, aside from the TV movie, there's really not that much to work. I mean, I'd love to see him on screen again. As oh, the doctor. Yeah. yeah. That, yeah. I, I thoroughly endorse that, uh, um, that. So how many would that be? So if we we're going to do five doctors, it would be, um, it's going to be 11. I'm just wondering how many of them there are actually alive at the moment. Uh, I think there are seven remaining alive. Yeah, because yeah, uh, is it? Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm gonna just show my age here if I if I try and talk about all of them. But anyway, so seven <laughs> that would be yeah. If they would do this, if they could do the seven doctors, that'd be great. But I wonder whether Tom Baker is a bit too old looking for. Yeah, for... well, I mean, they had the well, they've already had a crossover with David Tennant, and um, oh my gosh, now I'm I'm, I'm showing how young Sylvester with... McCoy. No, it was the one Peter, with the Peter uh, Davidson. Peter Davidson, yes. Right. Uh, David Tennant and Peter Davidson had a uh, little crossover thing um, uh, that was just a little five-minute thing. Uh, I think it was Time Crash. Right. Um, and did you see that? No, I know I didn't. No, I, I did. I think I read a little snippet on the internet that there was going to be on there. Like I say, my new—I don't know much about the new Doctor Who, um, not new Doctor Who at all. I intend to to watch it, but it's always a case of, you know, I'm going to get all of them on DVDs and I'm going to watch them right through. But I've got Deadwood sitting there, and I've got, like I said, I'm just going through Luther at the moment, and I've got. Oh, all sorts of things sort of sitting there that turn up over Christmas and they seem to keep turning up every Christmas and I never get a chance to actually watch them. But Doctor Who's definitely uh definitely high on my list. And I think maybe how about this? I'll make a I'll make a promise to the producers of Doctor Who that I will start watching them if they do a uh, a multiple Doctor crossover. There you go. If that's not enough to get them to do it, I don't know what is. Um so <laughs> that, that, that'll you know, they were thinking about it, they were unsure, but that was that's, that's what it right. Is. I've tipped the scales good. Well everybody can everybody can thank me for that. Um I'm always interested in people's con experiences. So have you have you had any of those situations where there's just been a terrible sort of like falling out of people at a con table or even in, in your own, you know, life, you know, like there's been a falling out of people actually at the table? Um, you know, I, I think uh, um, at, at the table um, I've had experiences like in college when uh, people just kind of drift apart, you know. Um, oh, sure, sure. Uh, what what you know what brings ticket brings you together in college is really just that you're all you all happen to be there. Mm, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Once college right. ends, you, and you're not there together all the time anymore, and you, the only thing hold you know really the, the impetus to to do something while you're while you happen to be together isn't there anymore. So yes. there were never any like dramatic breakups or anything, but 
but yeah, game, I've, I've had game groups dissolve for one reason or another, and, sure. and that's part of the challenge of, of really being in the role-playing game culture is that um, and so many of the games that you play are, are best experienced over multiple sessions, and um, coordinating that when you're when you're a working adult is um, is difficult to do, especially mm. if you have family and all these other all these obligations to onto your with your time. Yes, when it's hard enough to just sit your own time to watch Doctor Who. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> you don't need to tell me about that. <laughs> so, what about at uh, at conventions though? Because I'm imagining that you've um, done a fair amount of glad handing and you know, like having to 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 convince people to to give, you know, give your games a try and, and so forth, and you can't really control who's going to come up and, and approach you, but have you had any um, have you had any experiences along those lines that have been, that you'd, you'd rather forget, but are prepared to, to divulge today? Um, I, I guess I've been pretty lucky, honestly. Good. Um, yeah, uh, the, probably one of the weirdest experiences, it wasn't at my table, but um, but I've been at a table where, at a convention, someone had a... Uh, I think they had a no 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 it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't even one of my tables it was just a story I heard someone had a uh, an open can of beans that they were eating um, at the <laughs> that that is that is odd. <laughs> no, I've been very fortunate. Uh, most of the people who who sign up, say if I'm running a game, uh, if they've heard of my game, um, they'll they'll be excited to play, and so they're, they're really eager to give it a shot. Um, mm. And if someone if someone is relatively new, usually my games are being pl- are being played in the games on demand area at a convention right and in that area it's predominantly a uh, sort of an indie crowd with with some uh with one shots in mind uh, people who are a little bit looking for something a little bit different um if they're a gamer they're looking for something that's a little bit outside the norm if they're not a gamer they're looking for something that's low impact and relatively easy to uh, to get started with right. and both of my games are kind of fit, fit either of those criteria depending on which which one you want to go with right Especially if you're there with, with a child, um, yes. which is the case um, as as uh, gamers uh, get older and start having families, they want to have something they can do with their kids. And yes. and you know, depending on themes, uh, sometimes uh, role playing games may not be the, some role playing games may not be the best. So I wanted to give something that uh, that a mom or a dad who want to want to game with their kid on their lap or whatnot uh, could do so and, and be involved in in that sense. Right. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, that idea of getting kids, getting your kids involved in role playing, and I don't mean it in sort of a preachy um, way, but uh, you know, to to rejuvenate the hobby, I guess to a degree, you know, kids for the most part are pretty interested in what their what their parents are doing, and um, yeah, being able to offer a parent the opportunity to play something which would enjoy be enjoyable to them and to their children at the same time, sort of a, a Pixar movies um, game, if you will, um, I think is sort of the holy grail of of, of gaming. So. Um, yeah, check out Happy Birthday Robot. And so, talking about convention experiences and so forth, and you're mentioning earlier on about uh, how you'd done talks at Gen Con and so forth. Is there? Uh, have you got anything coming up? Uh, yes, I'm going to be at PAX East. Um, I'm going to be on a panel uh, called a. It's, I think it's called Wood for Sheep. Um, it's uh, right. it's about board game culture and uh, humor in it. The uh, panel is uh, still still being coordinated and stuff, but uh, I should be there, and uh, along with a couple other people in the board game community, and we're going to be talking about fun board game stuff. Uh, so it should be really it should be a really good time. And as a board game aficionado, what's your favorite board game? My for- favorite board game? Oh man, it varies uh, type from week to week. This week, my favorite game is a game called Love Letter. Uh, it's right. a uh, it's it's by a Japanese designer named Seiji Kanai, um, but it's uh, licensed in the United States by AEG. 
uh, it is a is a de- uh, deduction game with just uh, sixteen cards, and you can, can play up to four players. Really, really simple rules, and and it's it creates this interesting interesting dynamic of play where people are trying to deduce who each other are, um, but there's no one person who is kind of coordinating all that whole thing. So it's it has the experience of like a werewolf mafia game where you're trying to deduce who is who, but having one moderator and you don't need 10 people or 20 people to get this going. You can play with as few as two people. Uh, it's, right. a, it's so much fun and it's, it's such an elegant design. It's my favorite right now. Excellent. So I'm going to give you a few verses here and you can, uh, you can tell me what you think. Um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer versus Hermione. Oh, uh, I'm, they don't have, got, to have a fight. I'm just saying like which one you, I mean, you can make them fight if you like, but which one you prefer and why? Oh man. Um, I gotta go with with Hermione, mm-hmm. she, uh, just because I I appreciate a uh, a, a bookish person m- more so than a fighter. All right, fair enough. What about um, Luke Skywalker or Harry Potter? Oh gosh, uh, mm, nah. Both of them are pretty whiny. <laughs> they, they are. Uh, I I'll say Harry Potter, uh, just because he's. Jeez, flip the coin. To be honest, I I, I could take either one. <laughs> All right, fair enough. What about uh, Indiana Jones or John McClane? Ooh, uh, that one's interesting. Um, I'll say John McClane. Actually, uh, feels a little more real. Yeah, like, yeah, just like yeah, because I'm from New York. I got I gotta gotta get that connection going. All right. So, what about um, John McClane or uh, Han Solo? Oh, all right. Got to go with Han. You got to go. You got to go with Han Solo now. Yeah. So he was me thinking you're going to be straight down the line, John McClane. But what about uh, Han Solo or Deckard from Blade Runner? <laughs> uh, I'll stick with I'll stick with Han Solo. You're gonna you're gonna stick with uh, Han Solo. Fair enough. Uh, a little bit moody. For my yeah, taste. There you go. And so this one presupposes that you've uh, that now a number of people have come on and. Uh, Ryan Macklin came on and uh, said he didn't like Tolkien, um, but he had, had at least read it. But then a number of people have come out of the closet as having not read Lord of the Rings and or any of the Harry Potter books. Have you read both of them? I have not, actually. I've, I have not read either. Um, well, I've... then this next question is going to be complete. I was going to ask you Gandalf or Dumbledore, but frankly, I mean, you can, you can give an answer, but I actually don't even care what it is because you haven't read either of the, the sets of books, so your, your answer is meaningless to me. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna move on now that you've made you've dropped that dropped that bombshell. I can't recommend the Gandalf Dumbledore epic rap battle that you can find. <laughs> but it'd be it, meaningless to you because you don't know anything about either one of them. I've I've seen the movies. I'm starting to regret getting you on the show, actually, to be honest. Oh you've seen oh I've seen the movies. That's almost worse than just leaving it out. I haven't read any of the books. I've read the Wikipedia articles. <laughs> <laughs> I've collected the McDonald's toys. Um, <laughs> I've read of the movies. <laughs> Excellent. All right, so for all the marbles then, uh, if you had one role-playing related wish, what would it be? <sighs> this is going to sound self-serving, but um, I wish... Uh, I wish I could uh, actually get onto a Diana Jones Award shortlist. Um, the Diana Jones Awards are kind of this uh, secretive cabal uh, that uh, that uh, announces a short list of things in the gaming community 
or or products or sometimes just kind of concepts. Um, and and the, they'll announce a shortlist and then they award one item on that shortlist, the Diana Jones Award. Um, and the, the story of the Diana Jones Award is that it was uh, that it's this a fragment of the terrible, awful Indiana Jones role-playing game. Um, uh, just one page of it uh, is, is what remains after after all copies were destroyed. And mm-hmm. so they cased the, this one fragment of it that uh, all, all you can make out on this fragment is Diana Jones. Right. And so it's encased in this um, Pyrex pyramid, and it's awarded to uh, one one person or thing uh, every year. And there's there are secret of cabal. You don't know who's in the cabal, and you don't know why they why exactly they select the things that they do. And there's no real categories. It's just you're on the shortlist or you're not. Um, and sometimes games are on there. Sometimes people are on there. Sometimes websites are on there. And it's kind of up in the air whether you're they kind of use the shortlist as this interesting um, core sample of what is what is cool and, and interesting in gaming at the time. And it would be it would be pretty awesome to uh, be recognized on that for, for something. Ladies and gentlemen, Daniel Solis. That's it for episode 51 of Penny Red. For any questions or comments arising from the show, Daniel at HazardGaming.com. So until next week, keep talking the walk. Thank you.